Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Eager-eared listeners may have noticed that we've increased our output a bit during this difficult and challenging time. And this is because we feel that it's important to keep talking about the plight of the planet. COVID-19 is a global challenge and a threat for all of us, which is causing fear and heartbreak for many. And all of us at Planet Pod want to extend our sympathy and concern for those who've lost loved ones and our enormous sense of gratitude for everyone who's working so hard on our behalf to protect us and keep the country going. From those in the NHS and across the care sector, to the delivery drivers, to everyone in food production and farming, in the supply chains, and those who are keeping the supermarkets open. For rubbish and recycling collectors, the post is the energy and transport workers, and the countless others on whom we rely. A huge Planet Pod thank you to all of you. Wherever you live, you will have noticed that the world has slowed down a bit, that pollution has reduced across the world, that noise levels are down, caused, of course, by the world putting the brakes on as we are all in lockdown. This is a really stressful and difficult time for many, but we wanted to try and give our listeners something else to think about for a few minutes. And I'm delighted to be joined via the wonders of Zoom for this Wildlife From Your Window episode. And my guests are from across the world, I might say, Dr. Tony Whitbread from the Sussex Wildlife Trust, an old friend of the pod, David Linden, the urban birder, who's an inspirational bird watcher and broadcaster, whose mission is to engage city folk around the world with the environment through the medium of birds. And David's tuning in from Spain. And by Jill Perkins, CEO for the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Welcome to all of you and thank you very much for joining us on Planet Pod. Thank, thank you. you. So today we want to explore what it is we can see around us from our windows, in our gardens, in the streets and parks and the countryside. So wherever you are during lockdown, there's still wildlife around you to be observed. So maybe I could start with, with you, Tony, and just ask from your perspective, you know, where you are, what kind of changes have you noticed during this period of pause for the, for the planet? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I suppose we, we're just noticing the changes that are probably happening anyway. And we're, I think one thing that's coming out of where we are at the moment is that we are starting to notice. We're taking the time to notice. And I'm really lucky because I live in the countryside. I can look out of my window and see an enormous oak tree, which is brilliant. Actually, this is a story of an un unfolding spring. The way I think of it is about how spring develops through the year. But it's all about light. It's all about the sun. You know, as, as we get longer day lengths, as we get increasing light, things start to wake up. So it all starts with that energy. And the oak tree is a fantastic example because uh, I don't know if you look at the oak trees today, they've just come into leaf. They're various, you know, some are still sticks, but some have come into leaf. And what you can notice is that the first flush of growth is a mass of light green leaves. And those light green leaves are the oak tree trying to just get something out there, get something growing nice and early so they can start to get, gather some energy. But the thing is, this actually keys in with the other people that are here as well. Then what follows is all the insects emerge at the same time. Vast numbers of caterpillars and eat all these tree, all these uh, oak trees uh, leaves. And then, of course, they're they're fed by the by by the, by the they're fed to the birds. So the birds come along. So we think of the numbers. It's vast numbers of these little tricks moth caterpillars. I think one blue tit nest uses ten thousand of these a year. 10,000? Did you say 10,000 caterpillars? 10,000 little caterpillars feed one blue tit nest, which is wow. incredible, which is an amazing number. And that's probably, one tree probably feeds quite a few families of blue tits. The interesting thing then is, of course, the tree gets wise to that. 
uh, these these nice young fleshy green leaves that you see now in a few weeks time the, the oak will develop another growth of leaves which will be kind of almost ready in color because they have more tannin in them so the caterpillars can't eat them quickly they lay down resources over a longer period. I think what we're noticing now, what I'd like to think about is that we're noticing things that are happening anyway in the countryside, noticing things that are happening anyway just outside the window. And we can take time to notice those things. So that's part of that whole kind of slowing down thing, isn't it? Because we have had this enforced slowdown. I mean, it's very, very difficult for people to manage because many of us are kind of, you know, shut in our homes where we would normally get the chance to go out and that puts pressure on families and things. But because we're not moving about, because we're not um, travelling, because there's far less, um, you know, traffic on the roads or people in the streets, that and that is forcing us all to be slow. So we're probably catching up a bit with nature. It's not that nature's changing. Um, it's just that because we're not doing things as much or, or perhaps, you know, we have more time, we're noticing that pace of nature generally. But, but Jill, I mean, your, you know, your speciality is, is bumblebees, obviously. Um, have you noticed, what particular changes have you noticed in, in the environment around you and, and particularly for those incredibly important insects? Yeah. Well, there's two things I've noticed. One is about people and one is about the bumblebees themselves. And uh, I live by the sea in Hampshire and... Um, there's a walk that I've always done um, out onto the seawall and around. Um, and you're absolutely right about people slowing down. And, and the walk that I've done every day, you know, for almost all the time, the, the 15 years I've lived here, I'm seeing more families out on their bikes and with their small children uh, and we're all keeping our distance uh, and there's this family with a, a brand new bird book um, uh, trying to identify the birds on the nature reserve that's one side and then there was uh, a family who were obviously looking at a bumblebee queen that had just come out. Now there's two parts to our seawall, one on the top bit and then there's a lower, a lower path. And I was standing on the top path shouting at them, that's a queen red-tailed bumblebee that you see in there. And they're shouting back, what's she doing? And I said, she's looking for a nest at the moment. Can you see her zigzagging around the grass? And the children, a lot of the children I talk to seem to be a bit frightened of uh, bumblebees or bees generally or insects. Uh, but these children are really getting engrossed with their parents just about us shouting at each other. So there's that people element, which I think is really positive to see uh, the young children taking an interest in nature all around them because we only have this hour or so out, outside now. But in my garden, um, the, the things that I've really noticed, because I now sit in my garden quite a lot, <laughs> a lot more than I did. Previously, my job was always travelling. I was always on the road. I was going here, there, or on the train to London. But now I have time to sit in the garden. Um, it's the, it's the just watching the amount of bees that are there. Uh, and I plant bee-friendly flowers. We have a superb... Um, tool on our website called Be Kind and there's 700 bee-friendly flowers on there and I've tried to fill my garden with bee-friendly flowers and it's working and I've seen six or seven different species of bumblebee in my garden and I don't remember being out in my garden sitting and just watching bees and listening to them. Uh, it's, it's been brilliant, it's been brilliant for me on that personal level. 
David, how about you? Because you're in Spain during lockdown and things are very different there. And obviously the wildlife is very different and the, the, the pace is different. What, what's occurred to you in the last few weeks as you've been sort of shut in your flat? Though hopefully you're not in your flat all the time. Um, what, what have you been observing and seeing? Lastly, um, Amanda, I'm, actually, I'm in the flat all the time practically. We're not allowed to go for exercise um, at all. You're not allowed out at all at the moment? No. Um, and I've been here for 30 days. This is my 30th day today. So basically, Goodness. I go to the shop maybe twice a week, and the shop is literally five minutes away. But it's taking me 20 days to work out. If I, if I went the other way around, I walk past the park. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm doing that now. But what I've noticed, I mean, I've noticed two, I mean, I have to echo Jill and Tony in terms of, you know, the fact that people are noticing more stuff anyway, generally. But what I have noticed is that when I'm making contact with people in the UK, you know, I'm getting so many messages, not only from friends and other people, but also from the media. Oh, there's so much more around at the moment, you know. And as you both, all of you have said, basically, it's because people are noticing because there's less footfall so there's more of these creatures coming out now to actually have a look around. And also the fact that we're stuck in one spot the whole time, as Jill quite mm -hmm. correctly kind of um, illustrated. And you just notice a hell of a lot more, which may have been there the whole time. In Spain, it's, it's been very interesting because I don't see many people at all. I, I've, I'm on an uh, apartment which has two floors and then the third floor is a sun terrace which I also fondly call my prison yard. <laughs> I can look across to the neighboring um, terrace because it's kind of, you know, echoes backwards that way because, you know, you've got the terrace and then you've got their building. Um, it was a bit awkward at first. What I try to do every day is to go out for an hour and just sit um, and just look up because my vista is basically rooftops and satellite dishes and, and uh, chimneys. And I've got like 40% sky and that's it. Um, it was a bit difficult at first because when I got up there, the family next door or across the way um, have a young daughter who was sunbathing practically naked. So it was a bit sort of awkward with my binoculars. <laughs> I got to talk to the neighbour with a screwdriver scenario and I told them that I'm a birder. And it's interesting because they are not interested yet. They're like, what's that? What's that? And I really started getting engaged. And I noticed in Spain that there's um, Facebook, book, uh, Facebook groups now where people are talking about the, the birds that they're seeing from their houses. And it's fantastic. And the same thing's happening in Italy as well, I've noticed. So I think there is a general sort of awareness in Spain, it's different to the UK, because I think the UK, I've always said, I always think that the UK is much more in tune with nature in many ways. We are a nation of animal lovers, much more than other nations, like in Spain. Because even though in Spain, they're surrounded by this wonderful wildlife, half the time they don't even realise what they've got, because they think everyone else has got the same thing. So, yeah, I think I have to echo Jill and Tony in terms of the fact that people are noticing more, which is great. So tell us a bit about the birds. I mean, you presumably from your prison yard, your rooftop terrace, you can see birds. Are you seeing more birds in that urban environment that you would have expected to see? Or are you seeing different species? What's it like there? Okay, well, I've been in this apartment in a very commons for two years. Um, but basically, I normally spend no more than two weeks here at a time. And in one given year, I could be here in the whole year for about maybe a month or a month and a half. So I very rarely go onto the um, prison yard other than to hang washing up. 
but obviously since the lockdown I've been doing it for 30 days and in 30 days I've seen 35 different species of bird including wow. 10 species of bird of prey so every day I see uh, griffin vultures and black vultures sailing over uh, not too far up either I have red kites I've got black kites I see common kestrels I see lesser kestrels um, I've seen short-toed eagles which is a a migratory eagle that um, only kind of breeds in the Mediterranean area and into Germany, um, and they hunt raptor, um, hunt um, um, reptiles. And uh, you know, I've seen one of those every day, which obviously to me means that it's got a territory nearby. Um, so I'm seeing all this stuff, which even though it's not totally unsurprising, because just outside the, uh, the city you'll be seeing all that stuff anyway. But to see it with such regularity. I mean, the other day I looked up and I had this beautiful flock of eight spoonbills fly across. Um, now, again, spoonbills aren't necessarily unusual, but to see such amazing birds just fly over, um, for me, filled my heart with such glee because there's a spoonbill there. Because um, it's... So David's sharing a spoonbill picture, which obviously listeners won't be able to see, but we will put on the website. So thank you, David. <laughs> Um, so is that, can I just say, is that unusual for a city? Would you expect to see those sorts of species in the city? Because something that we've noticed and that listeners have been tweeting in to us is that they're seeing birds. And I particularly, I mean, I live in a small town, but I saw a buzzard above my garden yesterday. Now, I often see buzzards when I'm out walking in the countryside. I've never actually seen one fly over my garden before. So is that unusual, do you think? To be honest, I don't think so, because... I've always maintained um, that all these birds and other animals are here the whole time, just like we never notice them. And half the time, even birders don't think about it because they don't go birding in the city, they go out. And when you think that in the UK, there's been about maybe 620 different species uh, ever recorded. In London, there's been over 350. And in terms of that 620 species, around 95% have occurred in urban areas. So, no, it's not surprising. But what is great is that people are not actually noticing, noticing more now, which is good. Jill, you, you were just going to chip in well, there. Yes, because I was so excited because I'm not a birder. You know, for me, bumblebees are it. Birds are so last year, you know. It's, just, <laughs> it's not it's big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I have this nature reserve where I, I do my daily walk. And uh, there were some birders out there, uh, just a couple looking. And I, I look and I can spot an egret when I see one. And they were standing there with the binoculars. And again, we're shouting at a distance, oh, what have you seen? And they said, there's a spoonbill out there. Uh, this is the first time we've ever seen a spoonbill on the Keyhaven Nature Reserve down where I live. And I said, no, that's not a spoonbill. That's not a spoonbill. That looks like an egret. How can it be a spoonbill? And they said, you wait. And it, when it turned around, you could see its bill. And it was really exciting. And I've never been excited particularly by birds, but it was fantastic to see it uh, on the Hampshire coast. Tony. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? People are finding the time to see things, which is really great. And um, there's some, a really exciting project here in, uh, in Sussex where they're reintroducing stalk just down the road at the Net Rewilding Project. And uh, people in Pulborough are now noticing these birds. Difficult to miss them, really. They're quite large. But they're noticing, noticing these birds and they're, we're starting to get pictures taking, taken from people's gardens of out into the countryside where they're seeing these birds fly over. So people are actually taking the time to notice. And I see this with, with other things as well. 
uh, we're being asked about butterflies, which I think people will probably wouldn't have thought to ask before. They were just there, and therefore they start to come, be, start to get interested. And you start to see the you know the uh, the unfolding picture of spring again. You know, the different butterflies appear. We've seen the yellow brimstone butterflies. We've now seen something with the orange tips on the end of its wings, which is imaginatively called the orange tip. <laughs> that's appearing as well so again we're, we're seeing things emerge and i think we're given the giving the impression that this is new stuff appearing but i don't think it is i mean the birds haven't increased in population in the last few months uh, probably the insects haven't either we are just noticing that they're there uh, which is great which is important uh, so it's it's good to see that and it's the same with the flowers the flowers go through the same kind of sequence in spring and it's good to see that sequence. It, I think it really awakens us to spring. You know, when you see the bluebells come out, they come out for a reason. That reason is the right time of year. It's before the leaves have come onto, onto the, uh, on the trees, so they can gather the light. And then they're followed by the wood anemones and followed by other things. You can see this sequence. And I think people are stopping to notice, and that's a great thing. And I think it's quite interesting about flowers and insects, and particularly bees, is how they've co-evolved together over the centuries so there's certain bees that can pollinate certain flowers uh, and you see them the hairy footed flower bee what a fantastic little creature that is uh, what a fantastic name for it and you'll see it with the big fat pollen baskets on its 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 legs because it loves comfrey and comfrey is one of those early flowers and some of our bumblebees have very short tongues and can't get into that little tubular comfrey flower so they they do what's called nectar robin and i've been showing some uh, previous to the lockdown I showed some people where you can see some tiny little holes around the top of the comfrey flower and that's the bumblebee sticking its tongue through to get at the nectar without having to go right up the little trumpet flower so really some fa fascinating things that you can see in your own garden just looking at the flowers that you've got I want to come back to that, but I know David wanted to chip in with something. I think, you know, just to add to all that, I think that this whole lockdown scenario has come for nature at a really good time because obviously this is the breeding season. And I think that although there may not necessarily be more of things at the moment, as Tony mentioned before, maybe there might be because some creatures may find territories now whereby previously they were trodden by people all the time. But I think that this breeding season could be a nice boon for the wildlife in general, because I've been, for example, looking at the, the states and how a lot of the beaches, especially in the, in the West Coast, on the West Coast, have been left abandoned, which means that shorebirds and terns and stuff can breed without any drama for the, at least this part of the season. So it could be a really good um, thing for wildlife generally, this whole thing. Do you think that will affect migratory birds? Because particularly where you are, I mean, in Europe, some parts of Europe, migratory birds have a really tough time, don't they? Because there's a lot of catching of birds, illegal catching of birds, sometimes netting of birds, which affects birds as they are on their migratory route. So do you think because people are not going out, is there a chance that more birds will be able to make that migration successfully? Or as you say, more birds will be able to breed successfully? Is that, I mean, is that possible too? Will that have a a knock-on effect on, on some of those species? Yeah, I think it, it will. I mean, in Spain, there was, um, I can't remember what region it was, but they were campaigning. In fact, they were actually told at the local government level that they were allowed to go hunting, and that created a massive uproar. uproar. I think it was in Castile y Leon, actually, which is the next region up from Extra Madrid. What, during the lockdown, people were allowed to go hunting? Yeah, there was, I don't know, it was just ridiculous. And in the end, it was, the main government said, forget it. So I think, yeah, it's going to be a major help. But obviously, 
there is still illegal hunting going on. Mm. Um, so that is, a, that is still a major issue. So what about those of us who are sort of, you know, perhaps in an urban environment here in the UK? I mean, what kinds of things can we be doing? What kinds of things should we be looking out for? I mean, Julie, you talked about bumblebees, but we always associate bumblebees for, and I've got the vision of your garden now, full of incredible flowers, you know, constantly buzzing. What about those of us who might have a very small patch or might only have kind of a balcony? What can we do to support bumblebees? And are we likely to actually get bumblebees into those spaces or will they only be hanging out in beautiful gardens like yours no 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 you will find bumblebees uh, everywhere if you look and certainly in london i've got some friends in canning town who have got a very tiny balcony you know five floors up uh, and they've planted it with flowers and yes the bumblebees have come and we we have a little saying plant the flowers and and they will come and that absolutely will so yes in urban areas even if you've got a you know the one thing we say if you've got a small area whether it's a little balcony or a tiny patio or a shared area plant a pot of lavender lavender is got the highest quality pollen and nectar co content for bees it's a superb hardy plant hardly needs you know a lot of work doing on it and really it's those old-fashioned flowers if if you know herbs we all use herbs in our cooking at you can you know plant some rosemary which seems to flower all the time now um, mm. things like that the thyme even though it's got tiny tiny flowers it still has brilliant uh, resources for bees so and what about water flowers. Should we put uh, water out? Because I remember hearing somebody say the reason that people get stung by wasps is they're after the moisture on your body. So if you put a tray of water out, the wasps will go and have a drink. They won't come and land on, maybe, your, on your lunch. But is water important for, for Yes, for I have a, a small little shallow bowl, which I put marbles in because you don't want to drown the, the bees. Uh, so they've got something to stand on or some pebbles in it. So they've, they've got the water. But yes, definitely uh, uh, put some water out for them. But... <laughs> You know, we, we see bee, but I, I was on the tube once going to Stratford and there was a bumblebee on the tube and everybody on the tube was going, you know, sitting back and, oh my God, and this buzzy thing going mad. And I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. And picked it up in my hand because they rarely sting. Most bumblebees are just within 40 minutes of starvation. All they want is the next piece of food uh, and put it in my sandwich box and let it out at King's Cross. Did you have any sandwiches left by the time you got there? Yeah. <laughs> Talking about feeding, I mean, I did want to talk to Tony about insects as well as plant life, but, but a couple of um, pod listeners tweeted in with some questions. Um, um, one of them said, is it bad to feed birds bread? Um, and what can you do if, to discourage other, you know, other mammals such as rats taking that? So, David, should we be putting bread scraps out for our birds on our tables? Because, I don't know, is that a myth that you couldn't feed them bread? bread not. I mean, white bread especially is not very nutritious at all. I mean, you look at some of the crows and the, the whites in their plumage is down to the fact that their plumage is weakened because of that sort of stuff, and the ducks right. as well. It's, it's, not, it's not good. If you're going to do any kind of bread, then it's better to put out granary uh, bread. So I wouldn't uh, advise uh, that kind of bread whatsoever. It's not, it's not really nutritious at all. So what can people put out if you can't get access to seed at the moment because you may not be able to get to the shops and things? Well, um, I mean, you can put out, I mean, basically some of the food that we eat, we can, I mean, we, we can still put out various things like, you know, corn and things like that. Um, I don't think that it's, in England anyway, it's that difficult to get good bird food. And if you can't get it out of store, then go online, you know, and, and 
and get some stuff. Don't get cheap uh, bird food that's kind of stocked up with, um, with cereal because that, again, is a very big attractant to uh, things like pigeons. Um, so you can actually still, you know, order stuff online. I mean, I got some stuff here for, for Spain. Um, I put my bird feeder out, expecting a whole swarm of Spanish birds to come along and love me, and not one bird's visited ever. So it's quite interesting how certain areas react. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's quite easy to get good stuff online. I mean, I'd, I would stick with you know, getting some flower hearts and all that sort of stuff online and, and, and feeding your birds that way and try not to feed them bread. Okay, Jill? I just asked Dave, David, um, my son has this theory that because I feed the birds all the time, I'm doing them a disservice and they're not working out how to get food themselves. So I do feed the birds and we have a whole host of house sparrows living in our hedge that just squabble all the time. But I feed them all the time, winter, spring, summer, I'm always putting out food. Should I just stop in the summer when there's plenty of food about, just let them get on with it? I think there's nothing wrong with feeding birds all year round. They're not stupid, basically, and they only come to your food when their natural resources are not actually happening. So what I've found in my research is the fact that obviously winter and autumn are, are really good times for feeding birds. Um, if you keep the, birds, the food out throughout the year, but less during the sort of spring and summer, um, occasionally, apparently, some birds will take a break from feeding their young with caterpillars like they normally do and come and have a, a McDonald's bit of fast food <laughs> at your place. But during the late summer when a lot of the young birds are roving around and discovering their territories, that's when they'll notice that you have your feeding stations. And come the day when it snows and there's nothing to eat, they will know where to go to actually come to feed at your place. Right. So it's always, I think it's a good thing to have uh, stations up because at least the birds know it is part of their territory and they will come to it when they need it. Tony, do you think there are likely to be more birds nesting because there's going to be less disturbance generally? I mean, obviously those of us who've got nest boxes up in the garden are kind of very excited if we see visitors and things, but, but just generally, because a lot of birds are not in gardens, they're in more kind of a semi-urban environments, aren't they? So they may well be in you know, street trees and things. Will there be more nesting, do you think? Because there's just fewer people out there? Well, yeah, possibly. And I think, as David said earlier, there may be territories taken up that wouldn't be taken up before. Um, the effects of it, I mean, this happened back in the, um, in the days of the um, foot mouth episode when people were not using footpaths then. And they found that uh, birds were nesting nearer to footpaths. The actual number of territories weren't, wasn't very different. The distribution was different, but mm -hmm. some of the breeding success was higher. Right. Actually, it, do, it does vary. And I, I I'm certainly noticing that there are, maybe it's because I'm getting more time to notice, I'm noticing there are more, more birds nesting around. Interesting, there are more, there seems to be more competition for bird boxes than I noticed before. So they seem to be actually, you know, trying to make use of what resources there are there. But on, on the subject of what, what people can do, um, carry on gulping out the window, I think, is, 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 is good advice. I mean, when, when this is over, hopefully, I think we shouldn't go back to the normal of just being separate from nature. I think you should carry on gulping out the window and picking up some of the thoughts that Jill has mentioned as well is yeah doing things for nature some things you can do very directly if you've got a slightly you know something slightly bigger than a window box if you've got a small garden or even a larger garden don't be too tidy 
think that's one of the <laughs> subjects is, is actually allow some messy edges, allow some fuzzy edges, allow some stinging nettles in the garden. You know, not many, perhaps just some uh, small tortoiseshell butterflies like, like stinging nettles, all sorts of other things like stinging nettles. Bees and wasps nest in bramble bushes. So actually allow a little bit of messiness in your, uh, in your, in your nat natural areas. Almost like rewilding on a very small scale, allow nature to mess itself up a bit. Actually, a lot is going on out there. A lot of other stuff is going on that we don't know about. And getting back to my gulp out of the window principle, carry on gulping out the window. Great advances in science weren't made by people shouting Eureka. Great advances of science were in science were made by people going, Ooh, that's a bit funny. Look at that. Uh, yeah, small exactly, steps. Exactly. That's what's happened in nature when people have, uh, you know, developed their understanding of nature in ecology and biology. It's seeing things that look a bit weird and trying to work out why. Now, work out why that bee is going to that place. Why is it going to that flower? Why is it going to that flower and not another flower? What are those holes in the side of the flower for? You know, what, what's, what's caused that? The idea of robber flies and robber bees that have actually got the nectar without picking up the pollen, which is a bit of a you know, Brad breaks the deal, really, doesn't it? You're supposed to pick up the pollen. That's the point. Uh, so you're seeing some of these things go on. Notice the weird stuff that's going on in nature, because however weird you think it is, it's many times weirder than you, than that. Yeah, and we're big fans of rewilding on the pod. I mean, obviously we've been to NEP and we've had rewilding, and you've, but you know, famously tramped us round in the rain in in Ebono Common. But but I think you know that was very formative for me. So I kind of rewilded my garden, which is a great excuse for actually not doing very much in your garden. And I would thoroughly recommend it. However small your plot, you know, it is not your sock drawer. You don't have to keep tidying it up. Um, but I think it makes a big big difference. And currently now there's been a report that there's much more rewilding. In, in our urban environments because the council are having to cut back. They can't have people out trimming verges and hedges and they can't you know, trim the margins of motorways in the way that they would have done. So we've got those rewilding sites happening inadvertently as a result of people not being able to carry on with their normal daily lives. So we're providing some of those spaces for, for, for the insect life and the, you know, the beginnings of the ecosystem, aren't we, naturally. But Tony, if I'm walking down the street, say, I've got my hour of uh, permitted exercise and I'm not lucky enough to have a garden, so I might be in an urban environment, I might be walking to the park. What kind of things could I see, perhaps insect-wise, that I might not have seen before, you know, in terms of little grubs and bugs and things? So there, are there stuff that I might now now take time to notice oh wow there's, there's a vast array of insects and other invertebrates that you you know if you're taking the time to look you'll see obviously the butterflies obviously the bees they're the sorts of things that people notice but if you look down on the on the ground you'll see these strange beetles and things as well i think somebody um sent in a picture recently of a strange people which was actually a devil's coach horse which um quite a quite a savage little people that go was that the thing that things. one of our listeners sent in that looked like a scorpion that's right, yes. What it's did you say it was called? Sorry, I didn't catch that. Well, a devil's coach horse. Devil's coach horse, what a and great name. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, a fast-running, aggressive beetle that catch, I mean, things that run fast are predators, and that's what this is. Beetles are often predators. Um, and uh, this, this has kind of pieces at, at both ends, so if you get in the way, it will actually give you quite a nasty nip. And that's just one example. You'll see other things going around. If you see a very slow-moving beetle or a very slow-moving thing, the odds are it's a, it's a herbivore, it's not a predator. You'll notice that. One thing I've noticed recently now because of the fantastic weather is a, um, a thing called a bee fly. It's a fly that looks like a bee. It's almost triangular in shape, has a great long proboscis, and it hovers. So it's an, another one of these robber flies. It actually uses its proboscis to tunnel into a flower, get the nectar without getting the pollen. And... Um, I don't know whether you remember the old Toblerone advert for triangular bees. 
it reminds me of one of those. It's a kind of triangular shaped bee fly, but it's a fly that looks like a bee. And you'll, you'll see a lot of these other things around. If you find a bank of dry earth somewhere, have a closer look. Because if you have a closer look, you might find that it's covered in little solitary wasps making holes um, for, for, its, for their nests. Uh, things are going on. Look even closer and you find it's not just one species. There are other species there. Sometimes you get one species nesting, another species looking at, looking at it in order to lay an egg on the egg of the thing that just nested. Mm. So there's a whole kind of story going on if you actually take the time to look. And this is all going on in the background. You know, just notice is always what I'd say. Yeah. Jill? And it's those stories. Uh, Tony's really right. Um, when we tell stories about these creatures, uh, how it comes alive for children. And for me, it is, it is a lot about the next generation of children. It is about them not being frightened of nature. And I know we use the phrase reconnect with nature uh, quite often, but to have this opportunity, and you know, even I'm a bit not scared a bit ooh, about saying this is an opportunity but there is an opportunity to get children now really engaged with nature in the way I was with my dad who you know every Sunday after Sunday lunch we had to go for a walk and we all dragged our heels around the fields but it was my dad that instilled the love of nature uh, for me um, so I, I hope that we can get young people really interested the other thing that we talked about earlier, some said uh, about, I think it was David who said that there's probably lots more things about, even though we're noticing them. Uh, and to get back to the sciencey element, it would be great if we could monitor the difference that this period has made. Now we work with butterfly conservation and, and our own science methodology on bee walk. So it's the same transect methodology that butterfly use and we do. Uh, for bumblebees. So we have 500 volunteers walking a transect once a month and recording what, the, what they see. More difficult now because you can't get to your transect or you, you don't have time or you're in lockdown, whatever. So it's, it's, it's going to be difficult, isn't it? Because we're all seeing so much. I would love to know whether there actually is much more stuff as well. Uh, that we're not trampling over ground and we are seeing more but that's that's probably a more difficult thing to 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 do so 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 you have people who work walk particular bits of countryside or or, or areas and and do be rec um, recording yes. basically do you yes. is that what you mean yeah so they uh we set them up or they they choose their transect it's one to two kilometer walk it might be where they walk the dog you know, my walk is out through the marina, on the seawall, back through a field and along a road. Uh, and I do that once a month and I record the bees I see and what flower they're feeding on. Uh, and that, all of that data goes into a computer and our fantastic science manager, Dr. Richard Comont, uh, analyzes all that data and then tries to answer that question, which everybody asks me every year, how are the bees doing, Jill? <laughs> <laughs> so people say. could do that so pod listeners could do that i know there's lots of calls on twitter there's an end for nature hashtag out there at the moment so people could do that couldn't they they could just record what they're seeing and although it wouldn't necessarily be very robust scientifically it would give us a snapshot of what's happening and it would give us some yeah. some evidence and some data and, and then david there's a lot of what you do isn't it encouraging people to look up in their urban environment and see what they're doing and take notice of what they see and and be aware of that because that's what's really important part of this is just about awareness isn't it and and this has given us a moment to to be aware of what's going on around us 
Yeah, but I think going on to, again to what the others have said, I think um, broadcasters and the media could help a lot more with engagement. Um, I think this has been a problem generally because I find that, for example, the stuff you see on TV about nature um, is either the amazing David Attenborough stuff, which, you know, is absolutely fantastic. But with each series, the bar gets higher and higher yeah. to the point that it actually just becomes, in many ways, entertainment. And I think there is a, a, a disconnect because people living in urban areas may look at that stuff and think, oh, fine, everything's, everything's great. And I think this is a really great opportunity for broadcasters to put something out which is very low rent, low budget, but just basically shows what you can see when you walk out your door, because there is a lot to be seen now because there's you know, less people out there. And I think it'd be a great way of engaging kids that way. I, just, I feel I despair sometimes because I look at TV and I see all these things that basically talk about jaws, claws and bangs. And kids are growing up thinking, well, there's nothing in the UK that can do that to me. So the UK is boring and their interest kind of dies there. So for me, there's a much bigger issue. I mean, of course, we need all of us to try and engage others. I mean, that's obviously what I do. I try and get people to, to notice what they don't normally notice. But I think there is a bigger job to be done. We need help, basically. I mean, you know, we need help from, from the top filtering down because I still feel that when I talk about nature to people, especially people who never sort of thought about it before, they still see it as a white middle-class middle-aged type of pursuit and especially in urban areas and that that needs to be broken down so what can we do what's what what challenge are you issuing out to 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 us and to wider listeners i mean what can what is one or two other things that we could do i mean we could take this time now to call to call out for people to kind of engage and listen and monitor but what would you what would you want to do david well, I mean, I think what I want to do is what we're doing anyway, you know, which is to get out there and just to get people to enjoy and to actually realise that there is a whole world out there and we're connected to it. And I think as Jill said earlier, it's about narratives, it's about stories, it's about trying to build a context to what they're seeing. It's not just ticking off something on a list, it's actually saying, you know, that be that insect that tree that bird has a backstory you know and i think that's the interesting thing i've noticed when i talk to people and i talk about robins for example and the classic thing that people think about when it comes to robins oh they're around the christmas aren't they and i've had the same robin that comes to my house every day for the last 15 years or have you and it's about telling the story that actually robins um you know when they breed some of them during the winter actually migrate south to places like Spain and Portugal. And apparently they tend to be females, so they've got more sense, um, rather than hanging out in cold England. And that, you know, the male and female in the autumn and winter actually hold separate territories and they sing. You know, it's stories like that that really engage people. And I think if, if we can, um, the people that know those stories could be sort of more prominent telling those stories then I think a lot of kids, because when you see the kids' faces when you tell them those kind of stories, they kind of think, oh my God, it's amazing. And they look at things from a different, different way, different angles. So I think it's important that we kind of start layering up the stories and just trying to get people enchanted rather than just saying, oh, that's that and this, that's this. I saw something on the BBC, um, on the BBC News yesterday because I watched the BBC World Service and um, 
and uh, they're talking about nature and there's an abundance of nature. But it was just the top line. It was just showing a couple of squirrels and a couple of wood pigeons, but not giving anything else, not making you want to sort of ask questions like why or, you know, can I see that where I am? Or, you know, there was no backstory. There's nothing else, just the top line. We need to go further. Tony. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely vital. I think I just really hit the nail on the head there. It's inspiring people. It's getting, to, getting people to you know, pay attention and discover those stories. It's much deeper than just what something looks like and the fact you can't upon it. And I think coming out of this at the other end, I think where we are now, this, some of the lessons we can learn is about rediscovering our localism, really rediscovering our place where we are. It's, I think, you know, might I get a little bit philosophical? Maybe we're going to move away from a whole society which is based on what we want, what we demand, what we expect. It's actually moving towards a society where we actually treasure where we are, what's actually there. And when you're talking about where you are, it's actually nature. 95% of our, of our evolution, we were out in nature. We were hunter-gatherers. We are tuned to nature, whether we like it or not. What we're doing now is a blip. Now, we, think we could be getting back to that. We could be getting back to a situation where we re really reappreciate where we should be in our local environment. And on that subject, what uh, I think a lot of organisations are doing now, but uh, certainly in the Wildlife Trust, we're encouraging local, local parishes, local neighbourhoods to do their own biodiversity map. It's basically mapping their local area, mapping all the wildlife in their local area to a basic system, which is fairly easy to do. And it's a great thing to do. Start with where you are, start with what you've got, understand not just the superficial, isn't it nice kind of thing, but what's there, how does it work, what's it made of. Uh, actually get that map, understand what you have in your local area, and you'll always be surprised. It doesn't matter where you are, you'll always be surprised with what nature you actually have in your area. Once you've got that map, you can appreciate it better. You can have ideas about what to do, how you can link things up, how you can turn this tide of lots around into a tide of gain and improvement. Actually, and that's something... To this, coming back to the idea of relocalising, tell you where you are, appreciate where you are, take it forward. And that's something pod listeners could do, because wherever you are, you can make your own biodiversity map, whether it's of your, your balcony, the park that you visit for your daily exercise, or, or if you're, your garden, if you're lucky enough to have a garden or, or a wider open space. So, so do a biodiversity map. And we'll put some stuff up on the pod, some resources, maybe, you know, some of David's top tips and the 10 things we should be looking out for and some of, some of your tips and certainly some of the fantastic things that you produce at the Bee Conservation Trust, Jill, because you're, you know, your guide to the 24 species of bumblebee in the UK, which is amazing. Amazing. Who knew we had so many of these beautiful little creatures? So, Jill, what would you ask people to do who, who might be, you know, for the next few weeks, we'll likely still be confined to, 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 our, to our homes and to our immediate environments. What kind of things can people be doing now as we look at the beginning of, of spring and um, to support bumblebees or perhaps to, to become more aware of bumblebees? I think if, if you're indoors and you don't have a big garden and you can get hold of something as simple as a sunflower seed, you can start growing. Uh, and it's a really simple thing to do, a little bit of soil. They're really hardy things to grow. Plant a sunflower seed with your children and watch it grow, put it outside and watch the bees come. And I think perhaps the other thing, again, for people in more urban areas who can't get out into the countryside, there are lots of different channels you can learn about nature, but I think art plays a particularly important thing. Drawing, you know, go on our websites, our birds and bees and wildlife trust websites, 
find a creature and paint it and draw it and, and take a photograph and put it on Twitter or use social media. We have a hashtag Bumblebee Art thing going at the moment. And it's a way of, of building that story up about bees as well. So there's lots of different things if you can't get out or you don't have a garden. And you can follow the Bumblebee Trust, can't you, at Bumblebee Trust on your Twitter handle. And yeah, we've got lots of resource, free resources on, on the website. Yeah, and if you are doing that, guys, do, don't forget to use the hashtag wildlife from your window. Um, you know, we shout out to London Wildlife Trust because I think they might have got their, their first, but that's the hashtag we're using at the moment. So, so do include that on, on all the tweets and, and, and pictures you send. And how about, David, what about birds? What can people do? in this period of lockdown? I, as you know, I'm a heavy promoter of urban birding and a lot of people in urban areas have not got gardens or are living in apartment blocks. So I, if you're one of those people in that situation, then maybe try and spend an hour a day just looking out your window and see what you see and just make a list of what you see. And if you don't know what it is, then make a name up for it. Because <laughs> I was kids that's what I did sparrows were baby birds starlings were mummy birds and blackbirds were daddy birds so <laughs> make it up uh, pretend that you're discovering the species for the first time ever and it's quite fun and I think eventually you kind of work out what it is it's a nice way of learning uh, what things are and if you have got a garden um, or access to a garden or if you're walking uh, doing your exercise then why not make your garden or your walk your patch and again, see what sort of things you see on a, on a regular basis. And you'll find over the ensuing weeks that you'll notice that there are song thrushes and blackbirds and sparrows and blue tits. But then occasionally you might see something that actually you haven't seen before. And you begin to build up an idea of the population of birds that are around you. And if you have a garden, you can also find out if you've got any nests, if any, if any birds are nesting. But word of caution, try not to be tempted as I've seen some people do on Twitter, uh, by sort of going up to the nest and shoving your phone in there to take pictures or film of the birds or the chicks and eggs in there. Don't do that because that could be disturbing for the parents and they could actually desert. So try and watch. In fact, do some social distancing when it comes to nests. Really important. And um, obviously, you know, your Twitter feed, you've got fantastic photos and, and things that people can find out more about birds at Urban Birder. But if people have got questions or they've managed to take a picture from a distance, they can always tweet those to us and use the hashtag and we'll tweet them on to you. And, you know, maybe we can help identify them because they, as you said, you know, urban birds are plentiful and people just haven't noticed them. So maybe now we're noticing a bit more of what's already there. Tony, what about, what about what would your tip be for people? Yeah, it's interesting. We're saying similar things, aren't we? And noticing is the key thing that comes up time and time again. Yeah. And uh, I think it goes with, with other insects. The sorts of things that are nice and easy to notice, like butterflies, why not make a list of butterflies? Why not just note what you see there to start with? That, that, that would be a good thing anyway. And, and moving on, if you've actually got a slightly bigger garden, but only slightly bigger, you don't need a vast area, um, as I said earlier, leave some areas to get a bit wilder. Leave some, leave, leave some of the edges fuzzy. It doesn't mean no management at all. I'm afraid that doesn't work either. But actually, leave some areas for nature. Allow nature to take over a little bit more than perhaps you were thinking about before. Um, and take that forward as we come out of this as well. Tony, mess is less. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. We love it. Upturned bits of wood, all sorts of things. That's the way forward. So, yeah. 
So thank you all so much. I mean, you know, do keep listening to Planet Pod, everybody. You can Instagram and tweet us at Planet Pod. Um, visit the website, www.theplanetpod.com. Download previous episodes. You can get our rewilding series at NEP and, and our, our trapes through through a very wet Ebono forest. Um, there's, there's, there's lots and lots of resources there. We'll post some resources from, from our guests um, and some links to their websites and perhaps some downloadable resources as well. And we'd encourage everybody to, 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 to just take the time as we have time now to see what's outside your own window um, thank you all for joining us and thanks for your sterling work that you do to keep wildlife and nature and the important part of the planet alive for all of us and to protect it so thanks for listening everybody stay safe stay well um, and stay socially distanced thank you to my guests jill david and tony thank you, thank you. and we're just going to close with the dawn chorus that jim our amazing producer got up at five in the morning to record for us so this is our little gift to you